This morning, as we are about to uh, take another look into 1 John 3, it's best for us to start with prayer. That's not a, a warning or anything. It's just, let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, we certainly need you. Thank you that uh, you are teaching us dependence. There is so much in this life that we attempt to do apart from your wisdom. We attempt to do without abiding in Christ. We don't depend upon our Holy Spirit as our guide. And Lord, you know that uh, apart from you, we can't do nothing. Even as we sit today, this morning uh, around uh, your word, we can't understand this without you. Nor can we believe it without you. Nor can we do it without you. So in every aspect of what we are doing now, we are dependent upon you. Thank you that you are God, that you are able, that uh, you will work in our lives and you will bring about results, for your word never returns void to you. It will accomplish what it's set out to do. I pray today, Lord, that its accomplishment is in changing our lives. May we be receptive to your word, and may your great work be done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In our walk through 1 John chapter 3, which is going to take us all the way up until uh, Easter time this year, we've already spent two weeks in the first part of 1 John 3. We have two more messages, including this one, on the topic, Like Christ. That is an essential for all of us, that we know that we will be like Christ, we should be like Christ as well. And John is teaching us that. When we accomplish that, we'll move on to our love for our brother, from verse 10 through 17, and then the last four weeks we will spend in living truth. And that's uh, verse 18 through 24. But today, I call this dose number three, all right? On like Christ, the first thing we have learned from verse number one is that God loves us, right? That is something that I've been encouraging you to be reminded of each and every day. I give you the information. I want you to take it home and appropriate it. Remember, God loves you. And it says so, so clearly, doesn't it, in verse number one? See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. Does He love you? One person said yes. Aha, uh-huh, okay. Alright, it does say that. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. For the re- this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. That's first essential that we need to remember He loves you. Alright? Make sure you know that well. That's our foundation for being like Christ. It's our foundation, is that He loves us. We saw it last week in verse number 2. Our future is that we will be like Christ. Beloved, now we are children of God. We rejoice in that, don't we? It has not yet appeared what we will be. But we know that when He appears, we will be what? 
liked him. Right? Are you convinced of that? Like him. When he appears, we shall be like him. That's the essence of all of this. We need a reminder of this, don't we? We will be like him. We will be like him. Don't let your future be forgotten. Sometimes we live only right here, right? We walk around like we're only looking at two inches in front of our feet as we go. He says, look, this is what I have for you. This is what you will be. You will be like him. And that's important for us to know that. Does that change what we do in the course of a day if we remember we're going to be like him? Oh, yes, it does. Very essential thing. That's why I'm telling you on Sunday so you can live it out throughout the rest of the week. Like him. That's what we see. For we shall see him just as he is. That's our future. Now today, I'm going to talk about our focus. Our focus in being like him is verse 3 through verse number 7. It's a bigger chunk, but listen to these words. First John 3, 3 through 7. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or known his, knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. All right. Focus skills. Ready? Little moment of observation here. Look again at these verses I just read, 3 through 7. Which verse captivates your attention at this moment? Which one looks impossible? See number 6? Let me read that to you again. No one who abides in him, what? Sins. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. What are we going to do with this verse today? It's right here in the middle of this beautiful section that he loves us and we shall be like Christ and all of a sudden this verse pops up. Now, I'm not going to ask for any hands, but just so you can answer this in your own heart, and maybe you'd look around the room a bit and see if anyone qualifies. Does any one of us have trouble with sin? Wouldn't it be great to be done with it? Wouldn't that be great? To say, hey, I'm through with that. That that would be outstanding. Is it possible? I'm going to ask you a hard question. Is it possible to be sinless on earth? Somebody said, no, very dogmatically. I like that. No. You know, there are those who believe that. Those who teach that, actually. Uh, I'm not going into a whole story about what they think. I believe Scripture does teach us that those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ are set free from the penalty of sin. Right? You hear that word, penalty? Set free from the penalty of sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. That's a heavy penalty, isn't it? 
And I'm glad it doesn't have a period right there. It says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He dealt with the penalty. Let me ask you a question. Real simple question. Which sin does Jesus not cover with his blood? Most of you are like, is there a sin that he just can't pay for? That he didn't die for? 1 John 1.9, it says this. You're right here in 1 John. You can see it for yourself in chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that what it says? Okay, that's a great verse. Romans 8.1, you might know this one as well. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Don't you like these verses? Beautiful verses. Beautiful verses. That's a penalty that I speak of. The penalty for sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ. He died on a cross, didn't he? To pay for sin. He paid the penalty for us. And by faith in him, we are set free from the penalty. We have eternal life. We are set free. We don't have condemnation any longer. That's great news. He's cleansed us from all unrighteousness. So, I like that. I like to remember that. It's very important to me, and it should be to you too. He has set us free from the penalty of sin. Now, what I also like, as I read through Scripture, and it clearly teaches that those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ will be set free from the presence of sin when we step into heaven someday. Set free from the presence of sin. That is going to be a remarkable moment. I, I say this every time I think about it. I won't know what to do with myself for the first who knows how long. Step up there and I'll say, who is this person? All I've ever known, all you've ever known, is a sin nature in a sinful world that, that is enticed all the time with sin. Could you imagine being free from the presence of it? That's incredible to me. Scripture tells us on a couple of occasions, as John is describing the eternal dwelling, Revelation 21, verse 8, he says, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, they, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Blessed are those who have washed their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. They may enter by the gates into the city. See, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers, the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. He shows you in the eternal state that we won't be in the presence of sin. We won't have sin around us and instigating the things that we do. By that time, as John was writing this, Satan and death had already been thrown into the lake of fire forever. Satan and death are gone. Forever banished from influencing you. 
forever banished from propagating sin. No longer will they be active. We will be free from the presence of sin. That's a glorious, glorious future, right? We look forward to that. Now, what's our present struggle? We're set free from the penalty of sin. We will be set free from the presence of sin. But guess what's going on right now? We call it the practice of sin. And guess what? It's very active, isn't it? I, I know that's an issue that all of us have to struggle with. We're going to encounter a series of verses, not just today, but also for next week, that might just alarm you. All right? Just to give you a preview for next week, verse 8 and 9 of chapter 3 here. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin. <laughs> Does that alarm you? Woo! Because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, that's next week's preview. Today I want to walk through something with you very carefully from verse 3 to 7. And I'm going to imply a simple principle of Bible study. Simple little rule. And I've used this rule before and I've mentioned it many, many times. God's word never contradicts itself. Alright? I want you to be sure of that. God's word never contradicts itself. Now, where there are issues that we don't understand, understand, the problem is not God's Word, it's us, and our ability to understand it. Okay? But God's Word is always consistent, because it's true, and God is true, and He will never give us contradictory information. That's my principle. I live by that. And so when I read these words, and I see things like verse number 8, if we, or, or we see verse, yeah, verse number 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil. Verse number 9, no one who is born of God practices sin. Or I come back here to the section today in verse 6 and say, no one who abides in him sins. I say, wow, that's going to be heavy. And then I remember, okay, God does not contradict himself. So, I go back to chapter 1. Now, notice something about chapter 1. I'm going to show you a verse here, or several verses anyway. They are written by the same man, in the same book. All right? We're not talking about the opinion of two different people in two different books, in one's Old Testament and one New Testament, or something wild in, in differences. We're talking about one man with probably the same pen, on the same piece of paper, writing the exact same things he's taught by the Holy Spirit as he's recording it, and he writes something that is absolutely wonderful. If you see it in light, this light, First John 1, 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. What did he just call us? Sinners. Okay. You say, is that wonderful? Well, hang on. Verse number 10, chapter 1. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. What did he just call us again? Sinners, right? Both verses make that very clear. We can't go around saying we're sinless. We can't say that we have no sin. And yet, we still have to confront verse number 6 in chapter 3. Don't we? 
How do we do this? Start with the fact it's not contradicting itself. All right? You have to start with trust here. It's not contradicting itself. But the struggle, it's very evident of a struggle. Paul knew the struggle too. I know John is writing here. But Paul writes in chapter 7 of the book of Romans. Now Paul, we would say of all people, he was probably the most farthest along in spiritual walk that we know in the New Testament. He was quite a godly man. And he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That's Paul's words. That is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if this doing the very good I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin who dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. That's his conclusion at this point. Just looking at himself. I know what's right and I want to do what's right and yet I don't do it. That's a struggle, isn't it? Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Now, this is the struggle that we are, are looking at. Even in Bible study, it is the struggle. <laughs> Trying to put these things side by side and say, I don't understand, Lord. What do you mean? Well, do you realize that there is conflict that goes on in the life of a Christian? There's a conflict between the flesh and the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. In Galatians, some of my favorite passages of Scripture, Galatians 5, it talks about that very conflict where the flesh is against the Spirit and the Spirit is against the flesh. And they both want their way. Today's a very good day for this illustration. It's like two football teams. Alright? They both line up on either side of this ball. They both have a desire for that ball. Don't they? One team has it. The other team wants it. And there's only one thing they want to do when they get that ball. They want to grab it. They want to possess it. They want to run all the way down and accomplish their goal. Right? The flesh is on one side and the spirit's on the other. Guess who's the ball? You and me. The verse says this. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these two are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things you please. We're in a conflict. These, these, the Spirit is strong, right? He's God. The flesh is strong too. That's not God. But it's powerful, because that's the only way we've lived. So we came to know Christ. So they, they have this, this... Now understand this. The flesh and the spirit never cooperate. Alright? That's never their desire to cooperate. They will never, they will never compromise either. Even the flesh will not compromise. 
the spirit will not compromise. That's called a true conflict. They're set against each other. You, you understand that tension? That's where you are today as a believer in Christ. You live in a sinful world. You have a sin nature. This is a strong flesh and it's standing in, in contrast to what the Spirit wants to do in your life. Now, that's what's been expressed all the way through here, that struggle. But I want to understand this with you. I want to set our focus where it needs to be in 1 John chapter 3. It's easy, very easy, to set our focus on what appears to be the biggest issue on that page. Verse 6. That appears to be the big issue. Because that's where we struggle. But the solution is what ought to be the focus. That's what he's writing about. The solution to the struggle. Verse 3 is important. Everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Verse 6 is important. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Those are important verses. Now, let's put together our thoughts in a different order than what the verses have outlined for us here. And start with where our focus ought to be. Okay? Start in verse number 3 with me. Everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Ask the first question, what is this hope? Everyone who has this hope, right? This hope. What is this hope? Well, back up to verse number 2. What is our hope? We know that when he appears, we will be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Is that your hope? Hope, by the way, is confident expectation. I love that phrase. That's not, I hope I make it. Right? You're going to have a lot of people up there very surprised. Wow, I did. You know, but we, we live this way down here. We say, I hope so, I hope so. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is confident expectation. We expect this because he promised. It's based on him, not on us, you see. And this is the hope that he's talking about. Everyone who has this hope, do you have it? Okay. If that's your hope, that you shall be with him, you will be like him, you shall see him as he is. If that's your hope, this is what he's talking to you about. Everyone who has this hope, does what? It's fixed on him. He purifies himself just as he is pure. You see it in the sentence? Very important. But that that middle word all of a sudden gets my attention. I see the word fixed in my translation. Maybe you don't see it. And you're looking all over the page saying, what do you mean fixed? New American Standard Version put the word fixed in there. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him. You might not even say that. It might say everyone who has this hope on him. All right. The Amplified Version said everyone who has this hope resting on him. Now, in both cases, the fixed and the resting, they put it in italics because that's the translator's help to help you understand the word. All right. 
So they inserted it themselves, and they put it in italics, so you know that they inserted it. It wasn't in the actual Greek original. What they're trying to express to you is a little bitty word, about three letters long, called epi. Epi is a word for contact. All right? It's on. It's contact. If I say the dog is on the couch, right? that doesn't mean he's hovering above it, right? He's got contact. He's on the material. He's on the couch. You can understand the word. And this is the, the, the word that's being used here. This hope that we have is resting on something, isn't it? It's got contact to something. What is it having contact to? Look at it. Him, right? Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. You see it now? Those two little words. On him are very, very important right here. Don't miss them. I know they're short, but they're powerful. On him. That's important. Hold that phrase. On him. Now, jump down to verse number 6 again. And let's see if we could start seeing something else in this verse other than our sin. No one who abides... What's the next two words? In him, sin. Do you see those two words? Do you think they're important right here? Oh, they're very important. In him. Twice now he has used a little preposition, in him, on him, to tell us what our focus ought to be. This is what it needs to rest on. This, is, this will make sense of the struggle, okay? He does. He makes sense of it all. How do? How? How? What difference does he make? Well, let's look again. Verse number 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Why did Jesus come? Told you that. To take away sin, right? Doesn't that say that? Jesus came to take away sins. Now, the word is iro in the Greek, which means to pick it up and take it away. That's its word. Pick it up and take it away. Now, if, if somebody had left things all over the platform here, and somebody came and picked it up and took it away, what would be left on the platform? Nothing. It's gone, right? You've got the picture of the word? They pick it up and take it away. It's gone. It's not here any longer. Here's a similar picture. Jesus Christ came, and he picked up the sin and took it away. What's left? Remember how we started our message today? Which sin did Jesus not pay for? He's covered it all, right? This is a very appropriate term then. He's come, he picked it up, and he took it away. Theologically, that's very, very important. Similar thing in 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. There's another passage in Colossians, I believe. It just came to my mind as I was thinking this through. How he has done for us what we couldn't do. He's paid the debt. Having nailed it to the cross. It's gone. Canceled. You like that word? 
That was such a beautiful thing to see. The day we paid off our mortgage. They stamped on there, paid in full. Wow. You know how long that lasted? That was when we were handing the deed to the person who just bought our house. <laughs> but it looked good for a moment just to see that on that, that deed. Paid. That's what Jesus has done for us. Paid. Paid. For our sins. If we walk in the light, 1 John 1, 7 says, that's in the same book. If we walk in the light, as he himself in the light is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He picked it up and carried it away. It says it again, 1 John, again, verse 2 of chapter 2. He himself is a propitiation for our sins. The atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Folks, I just can't over, over emphasize the impact of the work of the cross. It's a powerful thing. See, if there was one sin without a remedy, then his work was insufficient. Got it? He carried them all away. That's what he's telling us right here in this verse. He, he's picked it up and he's carried it away. So, that's why he's come. Taken up our sins, carried them away. You know that perfectly well, John says, as he writes verse 5. You know that. You know that. You just need the reminder. But you know that. He did this. What else do we know about him? Also in verse number 5. Not only has he appeared in order to take away sins, but also it says, and in him there is no sin. Right? You see that phrase? That's that's not a minor issue either. It's saying Jesus Christ was sinless. True? He was sinless. What's that mean? Well, that means in him there was no sin. Not one. Not one. No sin. No sins of the mind. No sins of intention. No sins of action. No sin. <laughs> you say, I don't even understand that one. Neither do I. He's not, he did not sin. That's what scripture says. Here, it says it in a lot of places. There was a thief on a cross one day, remember? Who looked at him after cursing him for several minutes hearing his partner on the other side curse him and curse him and curse him. And the thief said, We are indeed suffering justly, for we receive what we deserve uh, for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. That, that thief said more than he knew. Because Peter adds to this in chapter 3, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust. He's just. That means perfect. Righteous. All the way through. Second Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Scripture says it over and over again. I, I, that's an emphasis we've got to make. Jesus Christ was sinless. He is pure. He is righteous. Look at the end of verse number 3. Where it says, after it says we purify ourselves... Just as he is what? Pure. Look at the end of verse number 7. What is he there? 
He is righteous. You see those words? He's reiterating it to us. He's pure. He's righteous. He's pure. He's righteous. He's sinless. Are you ready for this? You ready? Who are we supposed to be like? Uh Uh-oh. Here we go. We're to be like Him. How? How? There's our struggle. How? I, I, I understand, Pastor, what you're saying. He came to take away my sins. Yes. And He is sinless. Yes. Okay. First of all, verse number 6. Back to it again. It says, No one who abides in Him sins. Now, it does not say, no one sins, does it? It says something very important in the middle of that phrase. And I don't want to miss it. No one who abides in Him sins. You see it? Okay, what's it, what's it, what is, is He saying here? It is expected for those who are abiding in Him not to sin. Why? Because when you're abiding in Him, where's your focus? On Him. Is it on you? Nope. Is it on me? No. It is on Him. The focus is on Him. Can He sin? No. No, He can't. So if you're abiding in Him, it's not possible to sin. Why? Because it's not you. And it's not me, it's Him. You see it? It's Him that we're talking about here. Who's dominating at that moment? He is. Okay, you say, okay, what, 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 what's going on here? Why do we not experience this constantly? Because we do not constantly abide in Him. You see where our problem lies. It's not in the theology of this passage, folks. The New Testament commands us to abide in Christ, doesn't it? If it's a command, it expects perfect obedience. And how good are we at that? Alright, so now you know where the struggle is? It's not the theology he's teaching us here. It's the abiding is the issue. The abiding is our problem. We are to abide in Him. But it's our natural inclination not to. We depend upon ourselves. Oh, I'll just pull up my old little willpower here and I'll get through this problem. No, I don't need any help. You're not like that, are you? You're not the one who uses your own wisdom and say, I could outthink that problem. I'll just, you know, I'll just, I'll come up with a solution and just bypass that sin every time. How often do we depend on ourselves? In the situation. How often do we abide in Him in the situation? It's a command that we abide in Him because we're not doing it. That's the point. We are not doing it. And we're called to do it. See, like I said, there's nothing wrong with the theology of the passage. It's the abiding that's the issue. That's our issue. Resting on Him is the issue. Abiding in Him is the issue. What about Him? What do you have in Him? Just say the word everything. And you've covered it. Theologically, it covers everything. In Him we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, right? 
I can just walk you right through Ephesians 1 right now. Ready? Here we go. We have everything, spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. We are chosen by God in Him. Right? We are holy and blameless in Him. Are you convinced of it yet? Hang in there. We are predestined to adoption as sons in Him. We have grace in Him. We have redemption in Him. We have forgiveness of sins in Him. Starting to see a pattern here? We have wisdom and insight in Him. We are made alive from the dead. Our trespasses and sins through Him. We are, are raised up into the heavenly places through Him. We are seated in heavenly places with Him. We shall be like Him. You see the emphasis? All the way through Scripture it tells us, we shall be like Him. So, how is it that we try to conquer sin without Him? You see? That's exactly our problem. We try to do this passage without Him. And that's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. He is the only solution for sin. Not just the penalty, and not just the presence of it in the future, but we're talking about the practical side too. He's the only solution. When you walk with Him, you see the difference? What does He do? He keeps us from sin. When we abide in Him. That means something very important. The focus is not on you or in me, but the victory is found in Him. Period. And I mean that one. There never change. The victory is only in Him. Only in Him. So you say, okay, Pastor, I know I've been struggling with this a long time. Have you talked to Him about it? Have you? Have you taken it to Him? He's the one who is the answer to all this. We know the difference He makes. That's what John is simply saying here. We know it. We know it. And that's where our focus should be. Back to verse 3. Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. Now it makes sense? Fixed on Him. We shall abide in Him. That's what we're called to do. We are called to abide in Him. Verse number 6. No one who abides in Him sins. You want the solution? Abide in Him. That's what He calls us to do. No one who abides in Him. There's no other way to deal with sin, folks. I don't have a different solution for you. That's it. Abide in Him. Number 3. Not only are we to have this focus, not only are we to abide in Him, but we should and and we shall practice righteousness. Look at the last verse again, verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. That's why I'm being very careful with you this morning. I don't want to deceive you in any way here. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Why? How do you practice righteousness? Is it your own righteousness? No. The one who practices righteousness, that's his, is righteous just as he is righteous. That's his character shown in you. 
That's his purity shown in you. That's his work shown in you. You shall be like him, right? Even in the issue of sin, he's dealt with that too. So set your focus where it needs to be. On him. That's what I've been showing you for three weeks now. He's our foundation because of him. The Father's love is poured out on us. And we're called children of God. That's our future. That someday we're going to stand before him. When he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. That's our focus too, isn't it? As we go through this life, this is where our focus needs set. Daily, right? You say, let's go better. Hourly. Oh, maybe you need it better. By the minute? How often do you need a reminder like this? The issue of sin has a solution. It's Christ. You are to be like Him. You are to be in Him. You are to abide in Him. Me too. Now, is it a good time to pray? Let's go talk to our Father. Heavenly Father, Your Word is set before us, and Lord, it is alarming when it shows us for who we really are. And it expresses so clearly the struggle we have in these lives. And Lord, I don't know how many times we, we fail to come to you because we're embarrassed. We feel defeated. We, we've been conquered again by some sin that, that we think is overwhelming. It's too strong for us. It's too, it's too dominating. And yet, Lord, you have taught us again the power of the blood of Christ and what he's done for us. And Lord, that gives me hope. That settles my soul. As I come before you, Lord, it makes me quiet once again to realize that Jesus died for my sin. And he did more than just die for it. He picked it up and carried it away. And now he gives me a way that I might live. Not just a future, but a present reality. I can abide in him. And I can walk this way. Lord, you know, and thank you so much for your grace. You know how we're going to fail. But I pray, Lord, that we might be more like him now than we were yesterday. And that throughout this day, we might walk closer to him than we've ever walked before. And maybe this struggle might continue all the way through. We know that that's our problem. But show us again our focus. Help us see Jesus. And to walk near Him. As you've called us to do. Work in our hearts, Lord. Change us. Indeed, change us. As to what we're going to be. Work in our lives now. That we may see a difference too. And have another reason to praise you. Thank you for our study. Help us to understand it. Apply it, Lord, as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen.